Hello friends, welcome to the show. My name is Tom Broback and my guest today is Ryan Thompson. Ryan coaches athletes out of his gym in Mill Hall, Pennsylvania, where he incorporates Square One with strength training. Ryan shares some pretty incredible stories he has experienced using Square One and how a neural lens is necessary for peak human performance. Thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoy it. day do the kids the kids give the most effort every day every day every day doesn't matter when they're in i recommend they come in twice a week and uh and they just they give it their all right so like the environment that's created here is uh push yourself but i don't want you to kill yourself yeah because they're most of them well i'll say about five or six are in season right now that are still training so I'm like, look, I don't like, we've been training for the season, so I don't want you to be sore where you can't move. So the, the really nice thing about uh, with them training here and the acclimation with uh, all the neuro work is that they're rarely sore, but their numbers and strength keeps going up. So they're able to perform uh, without any issue. When you're that an, neural, oh, yeah. go ahead. When you're an athlete growing up, did you have the mindset of, push yourself, don't kill yourself, or do you have a different mindset? No, my, my mindset was if I can't walk tomorrow, I did my job. And like, I look back at myself and I, I blush. I'm like, man, that was such a silly way of thinking right now that what we know now. So I, I really try to make it a point where, you know, what, we're, we're not trying to kill ourselves. We want to become better and more efficient movers so that we can perform at our peak. Cause I tell them like, if you destroyed yourself today and you had a game tomorrow, how do you think you would play? And they're just like, I probably wouldn't play that well. And I said, okay, now that we have that understanding, now we can start to work. So getting that, that kind of atmosphere change in the beginning was, uh, I think, really crucial. And then it shows, especially when, like, newer kids come in and they see the older kids, uh, like, just taking their time and understanding that they don't have to rush through their sets just to like get it done and then be really sore and complain about it. So they all kind of start to fall like dominoes, I guess you could say in terms of, all right, so these guys have been here for a while. For a while. This is how they work. And then I'll explain it to them and show them that same thing. And they just, they, they start to realize what we're really trying to do here. I think one of the biggest issues with athletes in the gym and then the general population as well is taking an appropriate amount of rest time. I think too many people either fly through their sets like you were alluding to, or they get chatting, they get on their phone, they get distracted, they wait, 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 and then it's too long Mm -hmm. and it's not as efficient as it can be. Have you had any issues with this with your athletes and what have you done to uh, correct it if so? Yeah, so um, sometimes when my athletes try to rush through their sets, I just tell them like, slow down. like they'll they'll go through and then their form starts to break down right their hips get out of place when they're trying to squat or they'll have a lot of lumbar flexion when they're trying to come up out of a squat or on a deadlift i'm like all right well you know that the philosophy here is uh, becoming a conscious mover and that how you move is more important than how much you move or how fast you're trying to shoot through it so uh, the way to combat to combat that is i put them on the metronome 
so that they have to follow this tempo. So uh, they, I'm pretty much restricting them from rushing through anything. Mm-hmm. And it also gives them time to or let their brain figure out exactly what I'm doing. So if they're on that timer and they have to squat, they're three, two, one, and then they sit at the bottom for one. And then I just let them come up naturally. And that would just give the, more, the brain more time to figure out, you know what I mean? We talked about um, the interpreting of information. So receiving information, interpret and decide on what to do with it and then create a motor output. So the more time they have to figure out where they are in, in the movement, the more efficient we can make them move. There's so a I fine line with, uh, with the sensory input between uh, challenging the brain and then also getting to a point where it's not as specific to uh, their sport or to what they want to get out of the training. And it can turn more into a circus act how have you been able to manage that, giving them more sensory input than the average athlete might get, but not overwhelming them to a point where it's becoming looking, like I said, like the circus. Uh, so I try to keep the, the inputs as, as pretty much as basic as I can, or if I have to like elude for make something look a little bit more crazy, like I don't normally have to do that. So if I'm going to do square one with them and let's just say they're deadlifting and it just feels really heavy today or something just doesn't feel right. I can put them at a, uh, I like the bottom position with tension. Say they're at the bottom of a deadlift and I say, all right, just get tension, but I don't want you to pick it up. And then I'll work some eye convergence work with them. And like, even just holding the position will normally set their nervous systems off where it will allow me to go into uh, square one and dig in and get the dysfunction out and then move from there. So like, I, I don't really have to make things super circus like, so I can really just the way that I can use these different triggers or sensory input, I can stay very close to the way that I program in terms of their movement. That makes a lot of sense. And anyone who's looking at your Instagram page can understand not only your big square one advocate, which we'll get to in this episode, but you mm-hmm. also see things from a neurological lens in training, whereas most people see it from an orthopedic lens or a biomechanics lens, you've really taken that neural lens uh, to the next level. Tell me how you got started in that and why you saw it was important to incorporate in training your athletes. So I got started with square one when I was working at a gym in state college and I worked with a man called, his name is Corey Murtha, who actually worked, he moved out to Chicago and worked one-on-one with Sean learning it. So while he was learning pretty much the basics of square one while he was still working at the gym with me, uh, I was in a sense like a guinea pig, right? He would test things out and figure it out. And at the time, I really didn't understand what it was until I got hurt. So uh, I'm squatting one day. I'm at the bottom of a squat, go to come up, and I totally just like blow out like low back, left hip. And I'm having issues where I have exhausted all options in terms of um, – traditional therapy stretches, uh, PT exercises, chiropractic work. Uh, I even went, went to um, a specialist who had a little bit of background in neurology, but not addressing the same way that square one did. So when uh, Corey had come back after he worked at Sean, I asked him, I was like, dude, do you have like a little bit of time you can put me on the table and figure out what's happening? And at this point, I've been working on this issue for months. 
And I was, I was fed up. You know, I, was, I didn't understand how to solve it. And Corey puts me on the table, works on me for between like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I get up and I'm fine. I wasn't able to do a, a glute bridge before without pain or lower body work, without shooting pain. And then I get up and try all the exercises and I'm completely good. And I was just like blown away. And at that point, I was like, I don't get it yet. I don't understand, but I'm in. Whatever it is, I'm in. And that's, that's pretty much what kickstarted my, my journey down this neural rabbit hole, uh, especially with square one. To a coach who's never heard of square one or never seen it implemented, how would you describe what kind of system it is and how it benefits athletes? Yes. So uh, let's go back to talking about the brain a little bit. So our, our brains are responsible for called three terms, which is receiving input, interpret and decide, and creating a motor output. So I just want you to have that background first. <clears throat> so like what square one does is it deals with ground force reactions in all three planes of movement, and it's reducing the sense of threat. And then we have two rudimentary or two rhythmic patterns in which we are all wired to do as humans, which is get upright and walk. So square one is like a, I can call it like a sniper rifle in terms of finding these very specific joint actions that are intolerant to load or in these ground reaction forces. So I have two examples that I want to share with you that pretty much like show how square one is applied. But first, the, the nervous system is kind of like a breaker box, right? So sometimes there's too much input and a breaker will flip and then there's no more electrical input to that, that output. And then you're sitting in the, the house with the lights off figuring out what happened, right? So normally when we have any type of, type of stress or trauma or, you know, uh, injury or whatnot, that would be essential to like a blowout of a breaker. So how do we solve that? So that's where I'll explain where square one comes in. Two metaphors I want to use to kind of explain how square one goes about that is have you ever done a group project before? I don't miss group projects one bit of school. They were very, very traumatic. Yeah, it's, it's a rough spot, right? Because you have mm -hmm. to depend on someone else to get their job done. So let's say you're in a group project and one of the people in this group decides, you know what, I'm just going to slack. You know what I mean? I, everyone else will kind of carry me through. So everybody else can't focus on what their specific job is and has to start taking away from the re their resources to help that guy who's not doing his job. So our bodies work similar in terms of like if knee flexion doesn't feel like doing its job or senses threat to where it doesn't want to do its job. That means ankle has to make up for it. Hip has to make up for it on both sides. It could be lumbar. It could be cervical. It could be from coming from anywhere. So all square one does is tell that joint, Hey, you're safe. Why don't you get back to work now? The other example is in terms of communication. So I'm sure you remember the good days of elementary school when you would walk in and you see your teacher's not there. You got a sub today. How does the classroom react? Oh my gosh, those are next to field trips. Those might have been the best days. 
Right, man, because you got, dude, loosen the chain, loosen the collar. I'm, I'm good. I can be a little rowdy today. So in those types of environments, it's a little bit harder to get communication through in terms of how is the lesson plan going to go today when I got a bunch of rowdy kids. You're probably not going to get the, the lesson that's supposed to be taught today very well. So then compare that to how does everybody act when the principal walks in? You guys straighten straight up and mind your P's and Q's. That's right. So that kind of environment is really easy to communicate in. Messages are very clearly concepted and spoken. So that's another thing that Square One does is it makes sure that the, the internal environment becomes more organized so that we can receive these messages so that we can have cleaner contractions. We can sense that there's no threat. So that's how pretty much square one works uh, metaphorically, right? So a way that I wanted to show you what square one is, is we're going to play a game. Have you ever heard of 21 questions? I have. Okay. Me and you are going to play square one version of 21 questions. I like this. So yeah, this is, I, it hit me and I was like, Yo, this is how I'm going to get the word out. So I'm going to play the square one practitioner. And you're going to play the subconscious mind. Okay. So right now we're going to say that you are uh, homeostatic. You are in balance. Sure. So square one is run through a muscle test. Essentially that muscle test is asking the question of, do you feel safe? Mm. And you can only answer in yes or no, which okay. is the way our nervous system reacts is either I like it or I don't. So right now, let's just say you're laying on the table. And I have you do one deep uh, mouth breath. Then I do, then I do the muscle test. And I say, "Do you feel safe?" No. What's your answer? Probably no. Not. Okay. So now square one also works kind of like a tier list or like subdivisions. So since you answered um, no, this will break it down into our two rudimentary or two rhythmic patterns: either walking or um, sit stand. So I'm going to check walking first. So now I'm going to ask you, um, does right step feel safe? Yes. Okay. So that will lead me to my next question. Does left step feel safe? No. Okay. So now with those two answers, I'm going to follow um, which step or which phase of movement is housing the guy who's not doing the part of the project. Mm, okay. So I'm going to be chasing what's called right step. So now uh, the next step would be to figure out which joint has the culprit. So with this, in a regular session, I would tap on a joint called circuit locate, which was borrowed from applied kinesiology. And then I would test. So right now I would have, uh, I would tap your right hip and say, does your right hip feel safe? Yes. Okay. So then I leave that joint alone. Now I'll tap your left hip. Does your left hip feel safe? No. Okay, so that tells me that's the problem. So from there, I only have three options, which is the three planes of movement in which the hip works. So I'd go through and check each of them. So if we're left step, that would be, or when right step, left hip, I would push you or I'd have you mimic the ground reaction force of left hip extension. And then I would test and say, does left hip extension feel safe? And you'd answer yes or no. Yes. Okay. So then I'd leave it. Then I go, I check um, abduction. Does abduction feel safe? No. 
Okay. So that I got that in my mind. So generally, if one fails, that means the other one is safe. But just for good measure, I'd go uh, left hip external rotation. Does that feel safe? Yes. Okay. So I have my culprit. So then I would do, um, this is where that hyper-specific intervention comes in. So I'd have you do the isometric of uh, left hip abduction. And then I would recheck my work. So this is where that kind of safety net of, do I know I'm looking in the right spot here? So now if you were, if you failed left step last time, I would go back and recheck left step. And if I asked you, do you feel safe or not? If I hit the right joint action, you would say yes, mm-hmm. in terms of neurological going. But if not, you'd say no. And that just means I was in the wrong spot. And that could be caused um, just by human error with muscle testing, because muscle testing is difficult. So, and that's pretty much how you would remove uh, a layer of dysfunction, figure out, you know, now that left hip uh, abduction knows I'm safe, I can do my job. So now you're back in a state of balance or homeostasis. So now this game's over, scrap it, restart. So now I'd have you go uh, mouth breath again. And I'd ask you, do you feel safe? Yes or no? Before we start the next game, when you're saying, do you feel safe when you're talking about like left hip, left knee, just for people listening, are you talking Mm -hmm. about you're, you're testing their muscle and seeing if they fail or not, or is there a different component to safety that you're talking about? No. So anytime that, that you say yes, after I ask a question is, um, is relevant to you passing a muscle test. Sure. So the question is the muscle test and your answer is whether they pass or fail it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause I'm the subconscious. So it's telling you I'm strong here. I'm not strong here. Okay. That yeah. makes sense to me. Um, right. Going so, back to the mouth breath. What if I say, yes, I do feel safe. So if you say yes, so that means that your body now is accepting of that task. Okay. So now I would have to make that harder to see if I can knock you out of this homeostatic state. So think of it as if we were doing a neurological progressive overload. Sure. Would you do like breathing drills with them to stress them out? Something like that or a different intervention? Yeah, I would, I would set like a, a neural foundation, right? With basic patterns. So like, breathing or compressed breathing you know what i mean as we get to that neuro progressive overload the more easier tasks that they can get to see as safe the harder i can make it gotcha. and start to have their nervous system grow in strength in terms of uh resilience and seeing things as less of a threat this makes a lot of sense as a physical therapist it's really hard to convince people just because the front of your knee hurts doesn't mean that your right hip could influence that your left hip could influence that your left ankle. Can, there's a lot of different factors, but bringing yeah. in the group project idea um, makes a lot. It's a great analogy to incorporate different uh, joints, different systems of the body and not just the, the site of their pain. Right. And the one thing I really enjoy about square one is, the fact that I don't, I don't have to guess, right? So this method takes out guessing. So wherever that unsafe joint is, I know that that's probably one of the culprits in causing X, Y, Z, right? It doesn't have to be pain. 
It could just be like a movement flaw, like limping. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think this is a big piece that is missing in the orthopedic world where we're talking about training or rehab is this neurological lens of how do all these different uh, ground reaction forces, the joint actions, uh, the different systems in the body, how's the brain talk to the muscles, how the muscles talk back to the brain. Mm -hmm. I think incorporating all of that in your assessment is absolutely critical to getting on a clear path. But I think it takes for a coach a lot of trial and error to realize that. And it seems like in your career, you've gone through a lot of trial and error to figure out what's missing and what's needed to improve uh, your performance as a coach. For sure. Like everything, everything's trial and error. Uh, I've had some of my athletes in here joke that they're in the lab because like almost everything turns into an experiment of how can we, how can we move better? How can we get more range of motion? How can we get stronger? And it always comes back to uh, the table work with square one. And then square one has also led me to dive deeper into the neurology world itself. So Sean has been an amazing mentor for me. Like anytime I text him or call him, he'll answer or he'll call me right back or he'll, he'll make time and come out to the gym and work with me. And from that, we've also stemmed to great relations uh, with other people in the neuro field, such as uh, Dan Fichter, which is great. Um, he's also introduced me to uh, Matt Bollet with the IP Institute. Like these guys um, with the knowledge that they have just to be like a fly on the wall in any of conversation uh, is beneficial because it's almost like they drop little nuggets here and there. And the more you listen, the more they start to make sense and you can connect the dots of how much a bigger role uh, ground reaction forces really make or uh, reworking reflexive patterns or how much, uh, you know, optical and vestibular input really matter in terms of uh, how to, <laughs> excuse me, how we move and how we can also reduce pain. When talking to other coaches, what are their biggest reservations with incorporating square one and how do you explain to them to get over those? Uh, most people at first glance just think it's super weird uh, just because it's so unorthodox to anything that majority of coaches, uh, I believe, have been exposed to. Uh, but then once I, I'm able to go there and they actually give me a chance to kind of explain it and show what it is, uh, they become very accepting very fast. You know, I mean, I've reached out to countless coaches. And in the beginning of my career, I, I've been involved with Square One for almost four years now. And I was like, I know I have gold here. Like, I know this is going to make such a big improvement. But if they're not willing to, you know, take a peek or see what it is, um, it's like it's it hit like it just hits a little different. Like, dude, you just missed out on a big opportunity. But for those uh, those coaches that kind of are like, all right, show me what you got, and then I show them that I can I can increase internal hip rotation in like three seconds, and then show them that it stays through their whole workout or whatever they're doing or getting their athletes out of pain quickly, and then they see their their athleticism improve. They're like, yo, all right, you're back, or my athletes are going to start coming to you. So. Uh, the biggest way that, that I can show any coaches to get over those reservations is to actually physically show them. You made a good point there that you can show them, uh, you know, instantaneously, <coughs> excuse me, instant, 
instantly that you can uh, increase the range of motion, but it also stays throughout the workout. And I think that mm-hmm. second piece is a critical part to the buy-in because there are a lot of things that can make instant change, but there's not a lot of things that can always hold that change through a workout or from workout to workout. But it seems that yep. uh, your career and your working with athletes, you've been able to uh, help them with that through your thinking, your uh, implementations and the use of square one, which is awesome to hear. Yeah. And it's really cool to see how it's really a uh, hand out. And the longer that I've, I've been around um, and I'll still check in with athletes, like guys who came in, I've had a couple catchers come in their knees are just, you know, destroyed. They're like, Oh, just catching just, I don't like it. It hurts now. Um, or not even that they don't like it, but it becomes more of like a daunting task to do because you know, you have to pay for it later. And then I asked him, Hey, how have your knees been? Oh, it's like, dude, that's so old. It's like, that shouldn't even be a question you're asking me kind of thing. Or like, uh, so my pitchers that come in who had like shoulder or elbow pain and they're just like, dude, I'm fine. I'm throwing fire right now. So I'm all good. And then the other thing is I can maintenance them. Even guys who come in and then they'll leave for like season and they can't make it in or I'll check in with them periodically. And they're like, dude, I'm still good. So to be able to have an impact like that on their careers in terms of staying healthy uh, really is a, a big game changer for all of them. And they'll tell me stories about their coaches like, hey, you know, they said I was looking a lot cleaner on my swing or my, my pitching has been a lot more uh, controlled and faster. That's so awesome to hear. You've had a couple success stories. You've had a lot of success stories, but you've had a couple that you've shared with me in the past. One was with a, an athlete trying to get back to sport, and the other one was a non-athlete. Do you want to touch on those and just uh, kind of give the listeners a little bit of insight to how powerful Square One and your training philosophies can actually be? Yes. So uh, one of my, my athletes had come in. He had surgery uh, on the ligaments on his toes, and they had uh, connected it to his Achilles. And when he first came in, he was limping uh, severely. And he also didn't have the awareness to realize that he was limping. So I worked with him and we did the neurological progressive overload in terms of uh, resetting like how his gait went. So I just have him walk and then we would play the uh, square 121 questions and just making walking a little bit tougher and until he got to the point where he could walk with like a little bit of a limp. And he was able to be aware of that he was limping. And that would even bring me just a quick side story into a quote that uh, Jeff Moyer had, well, I've seen on his stories. Uh, when we drink tea, we drink tea, right? That big emphasis of like when someone else were to drink tea, they just kind of drink it to drink it. But like when we drink tea, we're in that moment and learning how to move or how to drink. Like we're smelling the tea, we swish it around our mouth. And that really had. Uh, a big impact in terms of uh, intent, right? Making the intent matter. So I would tell my athlete, like, when we walk, like, we're walking. Like, I want you to be consciously paying attention to how you walk. And then I would still apply that back to square one. So even that deeper focus of how to walk or having him walk on a metronome or, like, carrying or whatnot uh, would help him be able to get through that. And then we were able to work our way back into – uh, jumping. He's a basketball player. So jumping and learning how to land and absorb force. So we would start, <laughs> excuse me, start with like just doing little jumps and get his nervous system to tolerate it. And we work away. It's like a cinder block and jumping off. 
Like as long as he felt comfortable and he was showing that he was able to absorb force on both feet, then working his way up to a bench. And we eventually worked our way up into jumping out of the back of my truck onto the grass where now he, he doesn't have a problem. He's running, he's jumping, he can dunk every once in a while, you know, he's shooting. So he's, he's gotten back to the state of normalcy within his athletic career. And we did that in about like two months. So that was pretty significant. That's incredible. And I'm sure throughout the process, you, you just wanted the best for him because you've been in that situation probably where you've been hurt or you've been uh, mm-hmm. the underdog and you're just trying to do the things you love to do. And that forced, probably forced you as a coach to think outside the box, to try new things, to double down on what you're good at um, in order to help this kid get back to his goals. Yeah. So uh, before I share the other story, like these, these certain things. So when I was early in my career with square one, right, mm-hmm. I would often compare myself to the stories that Sean was producing, right? He's out there killing it all the time. So I would be, I would kind of get down on myself if like, oh, I, I only took this person out of pain that came back the next day. You know what I mean? Like I <laughs> could have been, could have been anything. I could have may have just not cleared enough dysfunctions at the time maybe I was addressing it in the wrong way. Like maybe it was a ground force reaction issue with a reflexive issue, like different elements that, you know, I just, I wasn't prepared for yet. So those little, I guess you can call them little, little failures, little bumps in the road uh, has helped me to be like, yo, I have to learn more. I need to know more about, (laughs) excuse me, more about on how the brain works and how input really has an effect on us. To so that I, anyone that walks in, I know I'm 100% confident. Be like, I know that I can help you, without any type of reservation of my own. So that was that was something that really uh, propelled me forward into learning more about our our input systems and neurology of the brain itself. What is the biggest uh, factor that Square One helps with with athletes? Uh, creating a more organized. Uh, way of operating in terms of how we receive input, how to determine what we're going to do with it and how to create the most efficient motor output. How do you complement that with your strength training then? So with the strength training plus square one has been an incredible journey. So you've been, you've been in the the strength and conditioning world, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you know it's okay to go up and wait? That's a great question. Uh, right. Typic- yeah. You know, it's very subjective, but if an athlete, uh, I think a good answer would be if an athlete can complete a task, you know, if they have one set of four repetitions, if they can do all four repetitions with pretty good to near perfect form and um, they handle it. Okay. Didn't have any pain. They can probably go up and wait to challenge yourself a little better. Okay. So I've, I've now associated square one with a method of how to progress an athlete in terms of how their nervous system responds. So let's just say that that happens, right? Your athlete does what you just asked them and it looks really good, really clean. There's no pain. So we would make the assumption that it's okay to go up. I put my athletes on a table. I don't care how clean it is, how easy it was. 
if you don't pass the neural test, you do not go up. So with that being said, um, they have to wait for the nervous system to become as strong as their body is. Mm -hmm. So an interesting thing that I've seen uh, with all my athletes is they'll do a set and they'd be like, oh, it's like really easy. And then they'll fail the neural test and be like, all right, take a break and then go do it again. And then they'll do it again. And normally if they pass, it correlates with them being like, yo, that was, that was really different. Like, did you take weight off? Like, what did you do? And I said, I didn't do anything but clear up your nervous system. And then they give you that look. It was like, you can't be for real. I'm like, dude, for real. Yeah. So, and it's, it's kind of crazy. I've had um, a couple athletes actually test me without telling me. So uh, one of my athletes, he had a really good sense of, of self, right? Awareness of like, if something kind of felt off. So when we were squatting one day, he'd squat. And he would just kind of like give me a glance. And I was like, all right. So I put him on the table and he would fail the test. And he was like, I knew it. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, when I was squatting, just things didn't, something just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like it normally does. I said, okay. And he ended up failing the test. And then like probably another session was squatting and he squats and then he just hops on the table and he'd just be like green. I was like, all right, test him. So I refer to past fails as red green. So okay. he'd look at me and say green. And I test him and he, he would pass just like, and he had that good sense. And it happened with a, a lot of my other athletes as well, but none of them really kind of put me to that test. I asked him one day, I said, how can you keep doing that? He's like, I've been testing you. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Testing I was the like, tester. I like it. Yeah. So like, you know what I mean? I always tell them like question, question things, question everything. So I really like when they find obscure ways to question me on what I'm doing. And then when they get that kind of sense of like, all right, like this dude matches up, then it's kind of like that. All right, we're good to go. So that's just one way I, I've started progressing them. And it also gives them a lot of time or a lot more time to kind of work on how they approach their lifts. You know what I mean, making sure that they're getting down. So I refer to the bottom of a squat as a pocket. So it allows them to get into their pocket with good posture and figure out which positions work best for them so that they can they can operate the best so uh, it's, a, it's a pretty cool process when an athlete fails a neural test is that because they are perceiving the exercise they just did as a, a threat yes okay so uh, in a way that it's easy to, to add this in with square one because all we're doing is changing the environment their internal environment by adding weight or by changing tempo so like, I'd never have my guys do a set of squat with their eyes closed as like a working set. Like maybe I'll have them do it super lightweight. Um, I just like a trigger if we're like not doing like a lift day or just like kind of just figuring stuff out, but I want to be able to make their, their squats as strong as they can. So let's say uh, one of my kids is squatting, uh, let's say he's squatting 250, right? And he passes the neural test, looks really good, looks green. And I'll give him that choice. Would you like, every time they go up, I say, would you like a bump or you want to stay? So he's like, all right, well, let's bump. So we'll give him about five pounds. So he's up to like 255. And then it's new, new environment change. He'll squat again. And then sometimes normally in the earlier stages of their training, they'll get on the table and that will be enough to, to evoke a negative response or a, a threat response in the nervous test. And I said, all right, it's no problem. 
we just got to keep working. And normally the healthier the individual is and the more time they spent on me building up the resilience of their nervous system, they can make 10 to 15 pound jumps a session and, and not trigger. When an athlete jumps on the table and says red or green, how often are they pretty accurate with that? Uh, it depends on, on how their awareness is. Sure. Um, are most athletes aware then? Most of the athletes who have been here at least through the first 13 weeks get a much better sense of that. Because mm-hmm. like sometimes I'll mess with them. I'm like, all right, place your bets. What do you think? Red or green? And, uh, and you know, they'll be like, all right, I felt pretty good. Green. So only every once in a while um, – They'll skew, and that's fine because the neural test really based on me and my testing. But it's also a way for me to check, like, all right, so how aware are you of your body? I mean, just like some subjective data to see where they're at. And it also coincides with uh, how well they move in terms of understanding positioning, like when they're at the bottom of the pocket or when they're setting up to deadlifts. And, and you can kind of see those who it's now become second nature and those who sit there and they kind of work through it because you see like uh, the pelvis go from uh, a posterior tilt to an anterior tilt. And then you see the rib cage raise up before they go to lift and they get their tension. So, uh, and it takes time for that, that to develop where they understand these different uh, concepts that I teach them. So, but normally the later on they are in the, in the program itself, uh, everything almost becomes automatic for them. Do you think it's more beneficial for an athlete to train on a day they're not feeling it or to train on a day that they feel like the best they ever have and they're just ready to get after it, which is more both. benefit both. I both. Yeah, for sure. So like, and I'll ask them, right. So I, I like to give them that choice in terms of like, how do you feel today? And it almost lets to keep them hungry still. So I have, uh, one athlete who's in football right now and he'll come in on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. That's, that's his choice. He wants to do that. So on Tuesday and Thursday, I'll ask him like, how are you feeling today? And he's like, you know what? I'm a little beat up today. I said, okay, that's no problem. So just give me your best effort in lighter weights and we'll work. And he's they'll you know, I mean, not just him, like everyone will do that. And they understand the concept of lowering your rate, lowering your weight, does not mean you're soft or does not mean that you're not strong. Um, but we can still get good work and good table work to make sure that when you come in on Thursday, you'll be feeling a lot better. Or if you come in on Sunday, I look at you and I'm like, so what do you want to do? And they're like, you know, let's get after it today. Like I want to move some weight. So I, I want them to have that, that understanding of, okay, I need to understand my body so that I can get the best work I can with Ryan. Do you incorporate velocity-based training at all in your programs? At the moment, not a lot. Like, it, if anything, in terms of velocity, it's just for um, learning to absorb force first mm-hmm. before I can ramp up any kind of velocity. So they need to be able to understand they can do it in a nice rhythmic pattern. And then when they can understand that and they pass the nervous system test, then I'll tell them, all right, ramp it up. Give me some more velocity when you move in your power movements in terms of like, uh, I have a jump board that I, I tie uh, bands to. So I'll have them jump up when that band gets to its uh, highest point, it starts ripping you down to the floor. So now they have to learn how to 
absorb well. So if I want, if they're good at whatever band they're using, like, all right, now give me as much effort as you can to come up and then still control on the way down. And just that different intent of velocity uh, will sometimes hit their nervous systems. Like, okay. So it's a, a slower process in the beginning on getting them to understand how to apply velocity into their movements. One of the biggest things growing up was like more weight is better, but when you incorporate different things of, uh, how fast you move that weight, how much power are you expressing? How much control do you have? Are you aware of your body? Those are other markers of success that we can incorporate in the weight room with athletes mm -hmm. and we can get to the common goal of getting better. And it's not just how much weight is on the bar, which I think is a much better uh, and holistic approach to weight training, strength training, athletic performance um, that many coaches have taken uh, upon themselves to, to implement and to, and to help the field move forward. Mm -hmm. Agree. Before we go here, you have one more uh, uh, case today. First time you told me, I, I didn't know if I could believe you or not, but I want to hear it again about a non-athlete benefiting from square one. Yes. So this was actually one of my client's uncles uh, who unfortunately suffered a stroke. So they saw the success that um, I had had with uh, the nephew so they asked if there's anything that I could do for him. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. So I've, at this point, I had only worked with uh, one other stroke victim who had a great success. But this one was a little bit different. So he came in for a weekend. We did three sessions. It was a Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday. And I remember when he first came to me, he was six weeks post-stroke. Uh, he had a really heavy leg, so it was just kind of like that slow limp, did not have a lot of control over his left arm, uh, not from the shoulder all the way down to the fingertips. So we did square one. And as he's starting to move better and get more feeling, uh, I always have uh, tools in the gym. I'm always building something. So I had some nuts and bolts and, uh, and washers. So I put them down the table and I was like, okay, you know, you wanted to work on grip and getting more of that, that fine motor control. So let's try it. So at first he's struggling to pick up the items and then I put them on the table. So I'd have him try and pick up three or four, then do square one, uh, do some more, pick up, pick up, do square one, does it again. He starts to improve. That's pretty cool. Cause you're watching it happen before your eyes. Uh, and then, you know what I mean? His walk was so much better. His leg wasn't dragging. He was able to start moving his arm more and they leave. Uh, they come back a couple weeks later, and then mind you, the, we've only had about six or seven sessions, so it's about six to seven total hours of square one that we did. So he comes back and he's uh, he starts PT at this point, and they have him using these little clips, like the clips on the chips, you know, close your chip bag. So he's doing that, and he says he's doing pretty well. So it's a little bit tough. So I decided to build him. Um, the same thing so we can use it at my house for when he comes back. So he comes back and we start working on the clips and then square them up in between. He gets better and better. I believe he did, I think it was eight clips in, uh, I think it was six minutes, something like that. Um, but at the end, he ended up doing eight clips in like under a minute, just in terms of um, him being able to have more more fine motor control and picking the clips up. So that was great. 
he leaves, he goes back to PT and he goes back to that clip exercise they have him doing. So he's doing like easy to moderate clip sizes, doing really well. And then the person who's working with him just gets up and, you know, walks away for a second and comes back and sees that he's holding the black clips. And they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you know, just practicing working. He didn't know, but that was the hardest clip that they had. So he advanced from starting from the, the light medium-ish one to just dominating, clipping the hardest clips. And uh, him and his wife give me a call and they're telling me about it. And it's awesome. And then they end up coming back again a couple more times. And the last time I saw him, uh, he's back at work part time. So, and he's, he's back at work about, I think it was four, four months and either two or three weeks that he was back working, typing and, you know, getting things organized in his workspace. So it was pretty cool to see that how much of a change. The other thing when he came in for the last session is he was driving. He drove and they, they live out in um, Pittsburgh. He drove over three hours to come see me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Imagine that, you know what I mean? Sub five months of a, of a stroke and he's driving all the way out to come get a session. It was, it was pretty cool to, to see everything kind of evolve. That is absolutely incredible. Have you talked to any other uh, square one coaches that have had uh, such an impact like that? Yeah, you can, you can pretty much look up uh, almost anybody who's doing square one and they'll have some, some type of significant story like that. Uh, a really good one is uh, Niall. Niall Bratcher had done, uh, he was one of the guys I was introduced to in the very beginning uh, he did this, a woman had like, like three fourths of her glute removed or something like that. And Niall ended up working with her for like 10 sessions and like, you wouldn't even know, or like the stuff that Sean does on the daily, right? Like yeah. if you look through his feed, like 99.99% of his stories are like some real wild type impact stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure Corey's got a whole bunch. You know what I mean, even friends of mine who are, are students have made some really impactful stories as well. And that's a goal. That's a goal of what we do is to make a dent in the universe, to impact lives and, and to change people for the better. And you're doing a phenomenal job of that. I appreciate you jumping on the pod, Ryan. I look forward to following you on social media, connecting in the future. And uh, thanks for giving your time to, to me and my audience. I appreciate you. For sure, man. Thank you for having me. I love listening to the podcast and uh, yeah, keep doing your thing. It's awesome. I appreciate it.